Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way for you to keep on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day through our free email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, and of course, at our website, SupChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I am coming to you today from Beijing on a beautiful September afternoon. Jeremy is holding down the fort in the States and sends his greetings. I am joined this week by one of our favorite guests, Lucy Hornby, Deputy Bureau Chief of the Financial Times, and by my lights, just one of the best journalists working in China today. She's got a big scoop that you'll be seeing, you'll have already seen by the time this runs. Anyway, Lucy is going to talk about the work she's been doing on China's other economy, shadow banking, pyramid schemes, gray rhinos, P2P lending, a lot of other stuff too. Lucy gave a presentation on this a few months back at Merrick's in Berlin, and she's agreed to share her insights with Seneca audiences. Lucy Hornby, great to have you back on the show. Well, thank you, Kaiser. Hey, so Lucy, um, let's begin with just an overview of what constitutes the great economy here in China, uh, the various component parts that make it up, and maybe a sense of how big it is. Okay, so broadly speaking, shadow financing or shadow banking is financing activity that's taking place outside the formal banking system. And so, you know, in the US, we think of loan sharks, but in China, it's much more extensive than that. And by some estimates, the official estimates are that it's something around a third of official banking assets. The equivalent amount is in the shadow banking sector. Of course, that's only the bit that got measured. Right. Kind uh, of by <laughs> definition, you can't measure it all. Right. right. So and what really interests me are the sort of uh, more extreme corners of this this sort of mystery world. So I enjoy poking into that. Okay. Um, maybe for comps' sake, there's a shadow banking sector in the U.S. too, right? I mean, just uh, how big is that? Do you have any dead reckoning on? Well, so that's an interesting question. I mean, most of us think that we don't encounter loan sharks, right? It's something that you might read about in a mafia book or something, right. but you don't really hear about it. But the fact is, in the US, the off-bank lending has just ballooned since the global financial crisis. And so we now have, uh, I saw one number that in the US, uh, there was junk bonds, for instance, issued at uh, $564 billion last mm. year. And a lot of those are flowing around um, outside what we would consider the formal banking sector. Um, and they more and more have sort of been normalized. It's not just the godfather anymore, but it's been normalized through the financial institutions, but outside the banking sector. Okay, so what are all the different pieces of shadow banking in China? So, I mean, we mentioned a couple of things at the very beginning. So there would be, you know, the loan sharks, you know, these individual lenders, but also, you know, online lending. There's also all sorts of stuff, right? What, what, what are the component pieces of it here in China? Right. So what in China is more interesting is that shadow banking is often much more tied to normal citizens, private businesses, and small businesses. So a bit different than in the US where, you know, your average person is still going to the bank for their CD and their deposits and all that, and their mortgage. But in China, you have um, the legacy of a, of a Soviet-style planned economy. And so broadly speaking, uh, lending comes through the state banks, and for the most part, it goes to the state-owned companies. Um, in some cases, large private companies are able to tap this. Uh, recently, China's had reforms in the last 15 years that allowed individuals to take out mortgages. So that's a bit more like our system. But you still have a lot of the Chinese population, especially smaller businesses and private people, who are very tied into a non-bank financial world. Also, because the banks have very regulated um, interest rates and products, you also have a lot of Chinese citizens putting their savings into this world, uh, which uh, increases the systemic risk from the point of view of the regulators. Putting their, their savings in through what sorts of vehicles? 
Well, there's all kinds of things. So you can have in China, you can have what they call wealth management products, which are often sold by banks, but they're not actually backed by banks. Mm. Uh, this is a difference from an American CD. In many ways, they look and act like a CD. They might give you a you know five percent return, three year, ten year. Uh, you might get it at your bank counter from your teller, but if you read the small print, it's not being sold technically by the bank. It's not guaranteed by the bank. And the interest rates and the terms can vary quite considerably. Uh, so that's the kind of the part of the shadow banking sector that we have the most insight into, because that is tracked by Chinese regulators. They do worry about those products failing. But from there, it gets more and more exotic. You have people um, who are taking out loans from basically loan sharks. You have successful business people who pool their funds and relend it to each other. Again, rather than going into the banking system, Chinese private manufacturers are very famous for creating lending chains or lending rings, where let's say I make shoes and you make shoelaces, and you're about to default on your bank loan, but I need your shoelaces to make my shoes, so I'll loan to you, or I'll guarantee your loan. So that right. would be considered shadow banking too. The result is they stay afloat for a while, but when they go down, they tend to all go down together, uh, and they'll take with them a whole pocket of a regional economy. Right, right, right. So, I mean, it, it's maybe you've answered it in part by talking about uh, it being a legacy of the sort of Soviet-style command economy, where most of the primary lending by state banks is to state-owned enterprises. Is, does this explain most of the shortfall in in available capital to small businesses? Or, I mean, and and look, perform an opening. We're about to, you know, we're forty years coming up on this. I mean, it seems like I've been hearing this complaint. Um, from from very early on in the reform, and you know, I'm very old, <laughs> but no, I mean it's always been the complaint that entrepreneurs have uh, trouble accessing uh, loans. So often they have to go to you know rapacious venture capitalists who won't take your firstborn son and things like that. But hasn't this been a problem for a long time, and haven't there been efforts to try to uh, to address it? Yeah, so I was actually really interested to see, I was reading a book, uh, as you do when you're a China nerd, about reform debates in the 80s. So this is a book by uh, Joseph Fusmith, who's mm. a China scholar. And in the middle of all this sort of debate back and forth about how to reform China, there's a mention that, hey, this uh, private loan sector has sprung to life, and what do we do about it? So as soon as you had reform and opening up, you had these small businesses who needed capital. And you had people who were making big returns and would prefer to pool their capital and lend it to other private businesses, then stick it back into the banking system at very fixed interest rates. So it's happened for a while. I think what's changed, uh, particularly since about 2007 or 2008, is that it's become uh, popularized and democratized. Uh, so it's one thing when you have a lot of business owners engaging in this private lending. Um, often they're face-to-face -face with people they know. So you could have some very ugly debt collection problems, but you're not as likely to be spreading into the sort of common person or common citizen, common family. But and what happened in about 2007, 2008 with the marketing of these wealth management products is that people like your mom or, you know, your neighbor or your IE uh, or whoever started realizing that they could make more money in these, what they call the Titan paying wealth management products than they could in traditional bank deposits. And so that really spread it very rapidly into the average Chinese citizen's banking or, or financial kind of portfolio. Um, and that's something that worries people quite a lot. So we talked about now, I mean, how Hugh Smith's book talks about uh, non-bank lending already in, in the early days of reform and opening. But non-bank lending, of course, goes way further back than that. Uh, I know in that talk that you gave uh, at Merricks in Berlin, you talk about some of these sort of historical antecedents of this. Can you maybe tell us what did people do back in days of yore? And I, I imagine that there were lending clubs or, or things that are quite analogous to what you see today, yeah? Yeah, so lending clubs have actually been one of the big strengths of the Chinese diaspora because because they have these um, private rings of lending to each other and this tradition of doing so. Um, the benevolent societies in San Francisco and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, all these different things. Um, and, and that's why you really have throughout Southeast Asia, throughout anywhere the Chinese have settled, uh, you would have this tradition of private financing. And uh, it really gave Chinese a leg up because if the first guy who came in and founded, you know, whatever his shop was, a trading shop or something, he could then bring in new Chinese businesses, uh, give them seed capital. 
and then collect back from them as they in turn prospered. So you have this long tradition within Chinese culture, um, and it's particularly active in uh, Zhejiang, Fujian, Guangdong. Uh, these are the three sure. provinces that have sent a lot of Chinese overseas uh, where they've been very successful. Um, and it's also active around Shanxi. And that's uh, where... Yeah, Shanxi is. I mean, that's, that's like, you always hear about the Shanxi bankers, right? Right. So that's this town called Pingyao, which is now, I think it's a UNESCO site. But yeah, anyway. it's lovely. It's that walled town uh, kind of near Taiyuan, right? right? Right. So why is this place famous? What's, it's not maybe clear to a lot of us is that this is where China's first private bank, which was actually in a way China's first bank was founded. Uh, so at the time, the, under the Qing dynasty, they effectively didn't have any real banking. Um, and so somebody at a merchant house that ended up being called uh, Ru Sheng Chang, he noticed that they were sending cartloads of silver off to pay for one thing. And their cartload of silver was passing another cartload of silver, which was coming back to pay for something else. And so he realized that you could basically set up a script system right. where you could deposit at his bank in Pingyao, and then you could take out the money at his branch somewhere else. And that system uh, grew so much in the 1800s that it basically accounted for, by some measures, about half of China's economy um, towards the end. Now, it, it, hit its, uh, it hit a wall very suddenly, uh, partly because the Qing dynasty, with some of their reforms, they wanted to set up a formal banking system. And once the state has their own banks, then they're not eager to see these private banks, which are kind of like octopuses. So the state basically started putting in uh, things like reserve requirements. Hmm. And it turns out that these guys had not been keeping good track of their scripts. And in fact, had not, uh, a lot of money had gone missing and they, w they weren't able to, um, they weren't able to pay back all the money they had guaranteed. So when the state started seeing in the 1980s, the emergence of, of these sort of informal bank lend lending institutions, uh, did they have similar worries? Did they try to sort of put the kibosh on those or bring them under control as well? Yeah, you see repeated attempts by the Chinese state to shut this down. And and also the, the the words that they use around it, you know, very much sees, you know, shadow banking, private banking, private financiers, capitalists, you know, they, they're very much painted in a, in a negative light. Um, but, but at the but, same time, yeah. some of China's biggest entrepreneurs have said that we would never have gotten started or we never would have been able to make it through a downturn if it weren't for our ability. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And, and surely the state recognizes this, too, and, and suffers these things to exist because they know that they are a necessary lubricant for economic growth. Right. So the state banking system as it is uh, cannot provide the capital that China is growing with. But right. or, every or can so often, allocate it efficiently anyway. Right. It allocates right. it very inefficiently. Right. It's corrupt. So every so often they try to reform the state system to make it more flexible so that they can bring a lot of the stuff back in house, so to speak, or back on the books. Um, but at the same time, it just continually kind of spirals back out again. Um, and a lot of the Chinese state's instincts, uh, which is to command and control, you know, if you have a bad idea, they won't let you go bankrupt. They'll just try to stop you from getting a loan. Um, so you end up having uh, again and again a situation where the regulators are trying to control an industry by starving it of loans. But then people who are legitimately making money in that industry are able to pay these higher interest rates. And so the shadow banking system just bursts out of the bounds again. But they started to sort of clamp down at scale, I think. I mean, I, hard, hard to put it down. But I mean, it was like during the time of Wen Jiabao and, and, and Hu Jintao. I think it was Wen, in fact, who uh, I think maybe spooked a little bit by what he thought was a uh, potentially destabilizing rise in housing prices. Uh, there was, there was a, a clamp down on this, like, I think it was like right before the Olympics. Yeah, so there's a continual fear of the sort of bubble in housing in mm -hmm, China, mm -hmm. uh, and specifically a fear that if housing prices drop suddenly, that that the average white collar upper middle class person who really supports the Communist Party won't be so supportive anymore. Uh, so again and again and again, they keep trying to clamp down on the housing bubble, and a lot of the housing is built by private entrepreneurs who make a lot of money doing it, um, and who do it on the back of these shadow loans. Uh, so they were trying to, Wen Jiabao was responding to a popular outcry about high uh, housing prices. And he did it by vowing to cut off loans to private developers and to have the state take over and start building housing instead. 
Um, and so this cutoff in loans happened roughly around the time that you had the global financial crisis and the Chinese government putting out a massive stimulus plan. So with the stimulus, the the economy just shot up. And then suddenly, you know, if you can make a 30% profit on something, you can take out a 20% loan. It doesn't, it, it's, it's not a problem as long as the growth is enough to allow these kinds of profits. Um, and so that's when you really had this explosion of um, shadow banking that, that reached into every sector of the economy. So help me talk me through how did the sudden availability of all this uh, state bank funds made available mostly state enterprises during you know as part of the, the the stimulus how did that make its way then into the the shadow banking sector I right so it's kind of it. counterintuitive isn't right, it you've right. got low interest loans so how come you need high interest loans right that's uh, what i'm asking <laughs> so yeah so the problem was that the stimulus kicked out a huge economic boom and the boom then kicks out demand for stuff like coal so if you're a private coal miner, you know, and if you can get your mine going and expanding, then you can meet that demand, but you need the money to do so. And there's probably a, a restriction, meanwhile, on lending to private coal miners. So the only way you can get that money is not by going to the bank, but by going to the shadow banking. But then you also had this funny situation where, you know, a lot of state banks and a lot of state-owned enterprises were sitting on a lot of money that they weren't using very effectively. And so it became a huge corruption incentive. If you're a bank manager or if you're, you know, a steel mill sales guy and you can tap the state financing at a very low rate, but you can turn it around and lend it to somebody in town at a much higher rate, there's a huge incentive to do that. And as long as they can pay you back because the boom's going well, no one will ever catch you. No one knows, you. no one cares. Right, no one exactly. knows, no one cares. Right, right, right. Uh, but again, you, you know, you see again and again and again, you know, why are so many bank branch managers in China constantly being caught for corruption? Well, a lot of the reason is they're funneling money. Off the books into, right. No, that's fascinating. No, that's, thanks. That, that makes it much, much clearer. I think another um, one of the big uh, facets of this that probably has gripped a lot of people's attention is the uh, online lending. I mean, when we suddenly saw the major internet companies turn their attention to fintech, and probably the most conspicuous example of that was Alibaba. Well, what became Ant Financial was Alipay, which was a separate entity, and there's a whole complicated story around that. But we'll, let's just... Um, and so this is, we're talking about 2013, 2014, right, when, when Ant Financial sort of gets going, and it releases this product called, uh, the first big one is called Yulbao. Yeah, so if the there was a one wave of democratization, if you will, of shadow banking when these wealth management products began to be marketed to wealthy individuals. But you so know, that was the 2007, 2008. Right. And right. so that would be, but you really couldn't invest in those if you didn't have, say, 50,000 quiet right, cash right. lying around. But the difference was around 2013, suddenly you had all these smartphones and online banking. And then Alibaba comes along with Yuobao, which is essentially an online money market fund. Mm. Maybe can you explain how that works and how, I, I mean, I think it was, it was pretty fascinating. It was very clever the way they did it. Uh, and then give us a sense of how fast it grew to how big. <laughs> right. So what that was, was that was then this democratization of finance into the broad masses. Right? Micro-democratization. Yeah. Yeah. Like micro, way down into, yeah. To yeah. like every, like my my colleagues, you know, who made $3,000 or 3,000 yuan a month were, were in this, right? Yeah. Just, just everybody nuts. could yeah. be. Because as long as you were saving some of your money on these online platforms through your smartphone, you could sweep it into these interest-paying essentially money market accounts on the smartphone. And you could do that in tiny little amounts. Um, and also for surprisingly tiny amounts of time. So like a three-day deposit or a four-day deposit. And for huge deposit. interest rates. Yeah, really high, like 8% or something. So, you know, people were just moving money into this at an incredible rate. Um, I saw a statistic that in the first 10 months of Yulobao, it managed to raise $90 billion. Not yuan. Not yuan. $90 dollars billion. Dollars. In 10 months. Uh, of people uh, just sweeping their money in. And that included a lot of people who, you know, really are not wealthy at all, um, but, you know, have little deposits that they keep on their smartphones uh, instead of under their mattresses. Um, so that was, again, an enormous uh, blossoming of online finance um, that really scared the pants off the Chinese regulators. Okay, so talk about that. How What did the regulators do? I mean, Alibaba and a lot of these internet companies, it's almost a mantra among them that you don't ask for permission, better to ask for forgiveness. So they, they go ahead and do stuff like this and they expect 
yeah, there'll be, you know, maybe they'll pay a fine or they'll be, you know, given a slap on the wrist, but $90 billion, you know. <laughs> wow. A lot of money. Right, right, a lot of money. Um, yeah, so, I mean, from the the Alibaba or the other um, Chinese finance points of view, this is fintech, you know. This right. is like the cutting edge of new finance and its technology and its smartphones and it's all bundled together. And this is China at the cutting edge and doing better than the rest of the world and offering products the rest of the world doesn't offer. That's the point of view of the tech companies. The regulators look at it and they think, oh my goodness, you know, here is this massively growing pile of money uh, be- being managed by a bunch of tech companies that don't have banking backgrounds, right. you know, and with interest rate obligations that are piling up. And, you know, this could be a time bomb, um, which would then affect, you know, really the smallest workers in the economy, um, you know, shop girls and, and delivery boys and, you know, peasant families. Um, and so the regulators came down pretty hard on them and really tried to bring it into some sort of a managed form to avoid this thing spinning out of control. And some of them partnered up with more kosher, you know, money market funds and some, you know, even worked. With, I remember I was working at Baidu at the time. And Baidu put out a product that was uh, that was working with Citic, Citic Bank, right? And uh, I, I remember our, the whole the talking points that I was supposed <laughs> to, to, to use. What you know, were talking they? about what what how you know what why internet companies were well placed. I mean, because they had this sort of you know uh, kind of retail level exposure. They had all these individual accounts. They were you know already processing payments from all these, you know, very, very small individuals, because they had data, they could actually make wise lending decisions in, in the case of the you know, sort of micro lending. Uh, because, you know, in the absence of, of, of a credit system, this is, you know, before people started talking about the social credit system, at least you could look, I mean, there were things that you could look at, you could look at people's purchase histories, you could look at, you know, their online activity to some extent, and, and you would have uh, inputs that when, you know, we always said coupled with the, the retail lending experience of the, the actual banks, that would make for a powerful combination, yada, yada, yada. Those are the, the sort of the defense. To, I'm rusty on this. <laughs> but, I mean, look, all of this is probably true. Yeah, it's kind of true. Right, um, right, right. It's just a question of how fast it's growing and at what interest rate is growing, right, you know. Right, right. And so that's where I think. You know, it's not that you're opposed to this happening at all, but, you know, regulators kind of get a heart attack when they see it happening so fast. Right, right. Um, but now you have something that's giving people an even bigger heart attack, and that's called the P2P platforms. Yeah. So these are online financing things where you can go on and you can buy a wealth management product and it'll give you a, it says, guaranteed interest rate. And so you pump your money into it and then you have what's essentially an online CD that isn't backed by anybody and that you have no transparency into where the money has actually gone. But again, these P2P lenders are making a pitch, right? They're telling you, this is why you should put your money with this particular company, because we have this uh, big data, this you know AI-powered big data al- algorithm that's going to evaluate the creditworthiness of the individuals to whom we are going to then be lending your money. Yeah, and a lot of them are very open about where the money's going. You know, you can go onto these websites and you can see, you know, on the front page, they'll have maybe 16 or 17 different things that you can click on. And each one is marked, you know, how much time and what interest rate and where the money's going. Uh, but an individual doesn't have a lot of capacity to verify if that's right, true or not. Right, right. Um, but at the same time, you do have a situation where you could choose to be slightly more conservative uh, or choose to be a bit more reckless with different interest rates or, or make your evaluation based on the company that it says the money's going to. Um, so in some ways, you know, there is some uh, information out there. Uh, it's just a very big question how much of that information, first of all, is totally true. And secondly, how much, you know, your average Chinese individual has the capacity for evaluating uh, the riskiness of what they're doing. And obviously, not everything worked out nicely. What's happened in the last month with P2P lending here in China? Right. So in the last month or two, I guess it was in June or July, they actually had to shut down the center of Beijing because around the financial district, because there were rumors that there were going to be all these irate P2P investors who are going to flood into Beijing and, you know, uh, swamp the financial regulators' uh, buildings. Um, so so that's the worry, that people who lose money, and particularly a lot of the people who've put their money into these things, uh, you know, they're often ladies in their 50s and 60s who might be managing family finances, uh, but without any source of income. Uh, you know, so she sees that 
her friend's son, you know, he's got money to put his kid into the private school, but her son doesn't. So then she thinks, well, I'll have this higher interest product and I'm managing our family money well for our grandson. You know, I mean, people, it's a bit of greed, but it's also a bit of, you know, I'm trying to make the best decision on how I'm managing my money. Um, And when I started looking into this about two weeks ago, in the course of three days, I heard from a foreigner whose Chinese mother-in-law had just lost 200,000 kwai that she was planning to help mm-hmm. give him to in, renovate his house overseas. So over $30,000, right? Yep. And then there was somebody else who had, whose mother had lost 800,000 kwai. Uh, and, you know, that was the money this person was pregnant and the mother was hoping to save it up as a gift for the new grandchild. Uh, and then the third one I heard from was a person who I'd actually met at a disgruntled investors protest three years ago because he had lost money in trust, trust products. Well, he just lost three million kwai. Uh, well, fool me once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, okay, yeah. But, um, you know, yes, he had lost three million kwai in a P2P product. But, you know, he's an employee of a foreign company in China. Uh, he's probably earning a good deal in his salary compared to what he's spending in his daily life. And the bank doesn't offer much in interest. So, you know, it doesn't seem like a stupid thing to do until you find out they're not paying back. Since you say, you described this, as, I mean, it's really grassroots level democratization of, of the financial sector. And for that very reason, the government is very worried when stuff like this goes goes bad, right? Yeah, well, what the Chinese government does not like is people protesting on the streets. <laughs> and they particularly don't like it when those people are upper middle class Beijing residents. <laughs> <laughs> Fascinating. But there's another component of this that I think I want to spend the rest of our, our time here talking about, which is uh, about these large companies. You know, I, I'm not going to, I'm talking about these companies not specifically, but just as a class that we've all come to kind of call gray rhinos. Uh, companies like HNA, like Fosun, uh, like um, CEFC, for example. Uh, we've done a show about CEFC recently. Wanda, I guess some people have, have rolled in it. But these are companies that are making a lot of very high-profile, or were last year, making a lot of uh, high-profile investments abroad. And you connect this to the shadow banking sector. Um, explain to our listeners how they are a part of this problem as well. Okay, so a lot of these big private conglomerates, um, you know, have at one point or another fallen into trouble getting additional bank loans out of the state system. Okay. Whether it's because, you know, at the end of the day, every single Chinese business has a real estate arm. So whether it's because they've been hit by the cutoff in financing to real estate, or whether it's because they've been hit by the downturn in the Chinese and global economies over the last several years, um, and so they need to tide themselves through, but they've maxed out their bank loans. Um, You know, there's all sorts of legitimate reasons, um, but a lot of them have ended up turning to various financing platforms mm-hmm. uh, to make up make up the difference, basically. Right. And again, if you have a downturn that's short, it doesn't matter too much, right? You turn to these financing platforms, the economy picks up again, you pay off the loan, everyone's happy. What's happened in China, though, oh, since 2012, although the headline GDP numbers were not very good, but the overall economy, the growth has slowed significantly, and export markets have not been as good. And you have overcapacity squeezing your margins. And so overall, it's been a real time of stress to Chinese companies, particularly right. Chinese companies who can't suck at the teat of the state, state right. uh, financing, right? So, so that's what these all have in common is they're all private. Yeah. Right, right. And they're all big. Right. So big private conglomerates. Big and private. So, you know, at a certain point, uh, they realized that they could get financing um, for buying things overseas um, because... This was money's a goal. cheap overseas, right? Well, first of all, money's a lot cheaper overseas. It's not cheaper than the Chinese headline rates, but it's a lot cheaper than Chinese shadow financing rates. So, you know, again, they made a sensible decision of you can get a low interest loan overseas. And, you know, often they had a good story like, you know, we need this asset because we are following Beijing's plan for Chinese companies expanding overseas or because, you know, whatever companies on offer, you know, fits into our business plan in this sort of broad way. Although sometimes those companies didn't fit at all. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> some say. of them didn't. Uh, some of them didn't. Some of them did. Or, you know, just the fact that you have a lot of assets lying around in the world that were for sale. And so why not buy them? Um, yeah. And so, but one thing you could do was you could collateralize that target and get new loans 
and then use part of those new loans to pay back your old loans and try to solve this debt hole that you have in China. So you borrow from foreign Peter to pay domestic Paul. Essentially. Uh, so that was one thing that was going on. And then another thing that was going on in a few cases was that you could actually take this money that you'd raised in China and apply it to a foreign purchase, um, uh, at which point you've kind of locked in that asset. So all in all, the regulators started to see this massive capital outflow going on. And this made them very worried. And then they also got worried, very worried about the systemic risk because... It wasn't something that you could collateralize. Well, the problem was a lot of them were because they had bought something overseas and then leveraged that up to buy something right. else overseas. Essentially, if they had a default in China, you wouldn't be able to claim that asset. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, or even if you could claim that asset, you wouldn't be able to uh, monetize it fast enough to pay off the obligation within China. Uh, so that was the problem. And that certainly made the regulators very nervous, and this is what we're seeing the fallout from now. I'm wondering, Lucy, um, are there foreign companies or even foreign countries that have uh, exposure to this Chinese shadow banking crisis that's now looming? Yeah, this is what's kind of interesting. I mean, on the one hand, you do have a lot of uh, Chinese companies, for instance, that have uh, issued bonds. Um, so you have foreign investment there. But they may have backed them against, say, shadow financing or shadow lending activity in China. Um, you also have some foreign companies that are actively engaged in lending in China, you know, that have invested in trust companies, for instance, in China. And the other thing I think a lot of people don't realize is that Chinese shadow financing has flowed into peripheral countries shadow financing. So I cover Mongolia, so I'm most clear about it. Mongolia, Mongolia has a very high interest rate, formal interest rate. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of people who couldn't pay their debts found cheap finance being offered by Chinese shadow financiers. Cheaper, anyway. Cheaper, much cheaper. Right. Uh, and so a lot of Mongolian uh, entrepreneurs turned to that cheap Chinese shadow financing. And you even had some who then took that Chinese shadow financing and repackaged it at higher rates to, China, to Mongolian uh, retail customers. So that means that basically the nation of Mongolia is now completely exposed to the Chinese shadow banking sector. And I think the same is true uh, throughout Asia, especially in places that are either doing a lot of border trade with China or have a big Chinese diaspora where this money can flow very easily. Uh, we were talking earlier and you were drawing parallels to what's happening in the United States right now. Can you, can you unpack that a bit for us? So it's Different, but it's the same, right? It's different in the sense that the American individual doesn't engage directly in shadow financing the way the Chinese individual does. But you've also seen since the global financial crisis, um, you've seen recently increasing concern over the fact that a lot of financing has moved out of the formal banking sectors. You have private businesses that aren't able to get loans because banks are a lot more cautious about their lending after having screwed up in the run-up to the financial crisis. You know, there's lots of good reasons. And you also have a low interest rate environment. Mm -hmm. um, and so people become very willing to lend into a higher interest rate environment with dicier borrowers. Um, and so the American, I think if you look, you can see more and more expressions of concern, uh, including in the FT recently, um, that the American shadow financing sector, if that's what you want to call it, is really growing up very large again. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we all have uh, friends with, you know, Chinese parents who have been very enthusiastic about P2P lending, who have gotten, you know, the, the, the kind of get rich quick mentality, of course. A lot of them also are really you know, caught up in multi-level marketing and into just things that, that, to me, just on first blush, just look very much like pyramid schemes. Um, that's, that's, I mean, maybe part of the shadow banking economy, maybe loosely. And, and that's something I know that you've, you've, you've covered a bit in the past. Can you talk about what's going on there and, and how that fits into this? Right. So this is where China, you know, gets quite weird and wacky, which is what, what makes things interesting, right? The, inv the involvement of so many individuals and the, the way that this thing has really fragmented into such small amounts um, throughout the population, you just get the weirdest stuff going on. Like um, there's this thing in China, or there was about a year ago, where uh, college girls, you know, who were jealous that a different girl had a better designer jeans or a nicer handbag could take out these tiny little loans. But, you know, they didn't have any collateral. So their collateral would be they would take a picture of themselves naked uh, right. and send it to the loan shark. Uh, it was called naked collateral. And then, you know, the, the shame of being exposed uh, naked holding your ID card 
would ensure that these girls would pay back um, these loans that they had taken out without any obvious source of income. Uh, so that was definitely one very weird thing that would happen. <laughs> um, and then in the countryside, you also have these massive pyramid schemes that kind of rip through um, certain counties. Uh, the most famous one was about 10 years ago where you had an ant farming pyramid scheme. Uh, it's and, called Ant Financial. <laughs> it wasn't Ant Financial. No, 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 no. Alibaba had nothing no, to do I, with this. Um, but yeah, there was this pyramid scheme where you, the farmers, uh, this was near Dalian, they were told that if they bought like a, a kit full of ants, uh-huh. you know, and you'd have this starter kit of ants and then you would grow the ants. And it wasn't clear to me how you made money exactly from this, but but basically it was a pyramid scheme. So you would pay a lot of money to buy in and then you would get this kit full of ants and then you would start ant farming. And then you would recruit other people and they would pay money. And then you would subdivide your ant farm to them. And this ended up sucking in an enormous number of people who lost, you know, amounts, you know, maybe $1,000 here, $1,000 there that you think, well, that's not so much, but it might be their entire savings. A um, couple of years ago, we reported on something in Jilin province, which uh-huh. is known for corn. And there it was a corn financing scheme where farmers were putting in money based on the future value of the corn harvest. But then it became so big that, of course, the company didn't buy all that corn at that price right. and the whole thing collapsed. Um, but I mean, it was just a, an unofficial corn futures it was, exchange. Uh, well, plus pyramid scheme. Right. Okay. And uh, because it was a pyramid scheme, um, I forget the exact details of how it worked, but it was um, it wasn't just an unofficial corn futures. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was interest involved in these corn see, things that they would buy. <laughs> and then uh, I actually visited a pyramid scheme. Do you want to hear about my? Oh, I do absolutely, yeah. Lucy. So um, we had heard that there were thirty thousand farmers in southern Hebei that were involved in growing something called selenium wheat. So wheat is wheat, and, you know, there's some indication that if wheat is grown in areas that the soil is rich in selenium, it might be slightly better for you. So, you know, for the average person, this is not a big deal to get selenium wheat, but your selenium wheat is... cadmium rice, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) It's slightly better to have, you know, selenium wheat than regular wheat. So anyway, so these three or four um, counties in southern Hebei got themselves certified as having particularly seleniumized soil and then basically sucked in all these wheat farmers in the counties to pay to join these wheat growing clubs. And you would put in a lot of money, um, you know, maybe 50,000 quire or more. And then at the beginning, you'd get back your monthly payment with interest. And that would, you know, Chinese farmers are very wary of being cheated, but once they got one or two monthly payments back, they decided, oh, hey, you know, I'm this is trustworthy. I am getting my interest. So they'd put more money in. Right. And you'd also get bags of flour that was supposedly the selenium wheat that you had produced. Well, it's Bernie Madoff, right? It was, yeah, 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 yeah. So with wheat and flour. So anyway, so we went down to Hebei to try to find these guys. And, um, you know, on the phone, I had located a lot of people. And they're like, well, we've been, you know, we're, we're victims because it's not really a pyramid scheme. And the police shut it down. And so when the police shut it down, they've trapped all our money. And so we're the victims. And we want the police. Of the police. <laughs> for shutting down the pyramid scheme, right. And so we want the police to turn it back on it's because our money's all locked in there. So I'm like, okay, so we drive down and then go into this village and into this courtyard of a kind of what turned out to be a medium level guy in the pyramid. And suddenly he's calling all these other people and all these people turn up in the courtyard and they have all this flour, first of all, just bags of flour. And then also they have all these brochures and, you know, uh, glossy stuff about all the, you know, wheat farming they're doing. And they claim the virtues of selenium. Right. And they also claim they were, this is where it gets dicey. They're fitting into national policy because they claim they were creating farming at scale, which is something the Chinese government wants to create. Right. And so pooling land resources and whatever. precisely so you can buy equipment and grow more efficiently, right. whatever. Well, but looking around the fields, it was clear that they weren't because mm. the fields were still divided into little tiny strips. So nobody was actually growing wheat in this 
you know, unified way. And I certainly didn't see a lot of equipment around. No big combines or... Right. right. So then it gets weirder and weirder because I'm talking to them for a while. And then they decide that they trust me enough. They're like, do you want to meet Ma Lausher? You know, Mr. Ma, Teacher Ma. I'm like, who's Ma Lausher? And it seems like he's like the capo for this particular mm. set of people. And so suddenly they wheel in this guy who looked like death warmed over. He was like the super skinny guy. And his, his face was all kind of like greenish white as if he never went outdoors, uh, which is quite glaring and and scary almost and you recognize that immediately as signs of selenium poisoning or well i didn't you know but <laughs> i recognized it as a sign of a man who's in hiding oh, right, in his own right, basement you right. know because everyone else around Boy, me was yeah. bronzed like a farmer who's out in the sun regularly you know and and then i started noticing that some of the people in the room who were the most adamant about how the scheme was a good thing all had much paler skin than mm. the farmers, you know, who'd put the money in. Um, and so I kind of gradually figured out that these are the mid-level people, right? And so then we go and have say goodbye to all these people with pages of notes, you know, and they're like, oh, you know, you should write a report and get our money back and all this. We go have lunch and the people at the lunch are like, oh, you know, this is actually a bunch of cheaters. They run this town. They've taken money from everybody. Um and just then, another group called, and they're like, what? You've come to town, you've met the farmers already. And so they zoomed up to the restaurant and came barging into the restaurant. The minute they walked into the restaurant, the restaurant owners all turned pale and, like, left the room. And and they're like, come with us, and we'll take you to meet the really top guy. And I'm like, I thought he was in jail. And they're like, well, he is, but his wife is out, and so you can meet his wife and learn all about it from her. And uh, and they're like, come with us, come with us. So we get back, I get back into my car and they get back into their car and we start to follow them. And the driver that I had hired for the day, he turns to me and he's like, I don't feel safe following these people. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. they're clearly running this town. And clearly this pyramid scheme has not been shut down. And there are not victims who have lost their money. They're, the restaurant's already on fire in the rear view mirror. <laughs> yeah, this is the pyramid scheme. So we're like, okay. the driver's like, I'm not going any further. So I'm like, okay. So I called them up and I'm like, hey, you know, my driver's really scared that the police are going to get him if he has anything more to do with you because we know you're under severe prosecution. And this is when, let me, let me guess. <laughs> they say, oh, don't worry, the cops are on. they're like well you know we can meet with you in beijing instead i'm like great idea as our driver like u-turn gets back on the highway back to beijing um you know because you really can't drive a driver into a trap that he doesn't want to go to um i don't think that we were in any any real danger but it was definitely getting weirder and weirder and weirder you you never met the wife of the guy that was in jail who's the head of the the capstone of the period but we did ultimately meet some people at the bottom of the period who had lost all their money Uh and they had clearly been badly cheated by this and they reported that neighbors of theirs were committing suicide and you know so they had clearly wiped out certain villages at the bottom level uh, but then these townspeople basically still had what was a functioning pyramid scheme despite the so-called police shutdown um, and so it just gave a lot of insight into how you know you can have these things flourish in the countryside and nobody really knows but it wipes out a whole generation of people's savings well you know the fundamental well the foundation of any scam is you play to people's greed, mm-hmm. and this is sort of an infallible thing. And there's there's a, a a boundless you know amount of it, unfortunately, in a country like China. Uh, so to bring this back to just the shadow banking and the entire gray economy here, um, where do you see things going next? Do you think that regulators have really managed to rein in some of the the woolier expressions, at least, of the shadow banking phenomena? Or do you think they have a long way to go? Or you know, do they, as I suggested, maybe threaten to choke off a, a, a still a pretty important source of capital uh, in a country that still, you know, has state banks that don't allocate it so efficiently. Right. So the regulators are very concerned about this, and they've managed to get international uh, regulators concerned too. So like the IMF and uh, different international agencies are starting to watch China's shadow banking. Mm. But they go about closing it down in a very top-down, dirigiste way. So they'll say, you know, we know that banks enter this category on their books is often a channel to shadow banking. So therefore, you have to close down this category. So well, sure enough, within two quarters, it goes to zero. And then everyone says, oh, look, China's solving its shadow banking problem. But what they're really doing is changing the name and moving it somewhere else. I think your point about, you know, China obviously still needs the flexible financing is still a real one, and that's going to continue. But I also think what we're seeing is a massive deleveraging and default of all this boom years onto the pockets of the average Chinese person. And so, you know, every time somebody's mother-in-law loses 200,000 kwai, that is basically deleveraging China's debt. 
And, you know, everyone says China needs to deleverage their debt, but most international analysts, they think that that means allow companies to go bankrupt. They don't necessarily think it means shift the burden burden onto the Chinese person's pocket. Um, But you're also seeing, you know, a lot of private companies have not survived the last five years. You know, you've had certain industries where the private, you know, smaller private players have just been wiped out. And... Uh, you know, fish packing or, you know, you name it. But there's a lot of industries where a lot of people have basically shut their doors. So those are de facto defaults, and they reverberate up into the shadow banking system, and then it defaults back down into people's pockets. So, you know, if what you think China needs is deleveraging, then I think that's what we're getting. It's just not coming in the way that we thought we wanted to see it, and it's not coming in the way that all these advisors say that they should see it. And when the dust settles, it's not very clear that the people left standing are necessarily the people you would have wanted to be left standing. Well, Lucy, thanks a ton for taking all the time and um, for this very, very rich download on a topic that I just don't know that well. I'm sure that's obvious from the questions. <laughs> but thanks. Thanks a ton. Uh, before I pack up here, let's let's offer our listeners some recommendations. But first, I want to remind everyone that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina. Show your support for the work we're doing by signing up for our SubChina premium access service. And in addition to assuaging your conscience, you'll also enjoy all manner of marvelous perquisites. Uh, meanwhile, follow us on Twitter and on Facebook at, at SubChina News and leave us some kind words on the iTunes Store's review section. Uh, on to recommendations. Lucy, why don't you, well, you know, there's, Jeremy's not here, so you kick us off. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to go to a, a honored tradition of recommending something that is not new at all. Uh, something I've just read is called Den of Thieves, and it's by James B. Stewart. Mm. And it is the very tome-like, brick-like account of the Michael Milken oh. uh, junk bond. Um, oh, you're into this stuff. <laughs> yeah, 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 really learning a lot. Uh, so it's all about the junk bond craze of the 80s mm-hmm. and then the prosecution uh, for insider trading of some of the junk bond kings. Uh, and you'll recognize the name Michael Milken and Ivan Bosky. Right, um, But what's interesting is it's not just 80s, but you can definitely see certain trends happening today again. Um, where, you know, you have this combination of uh, low interest, interest rates, rates and then higher uh, higher sort of very dicey interest rate sector. Um, so that's been a very interesting read for me. But the Fed is raising interest rates just to screw Trump, you know. You... <laughs> well, that, that, that's what comes to, brings these parties crashing to the halt, right? You know, <laughs> that is the problem. Um, and then the other book I'm reading is also a... Um, oldie but goodie and it's called uh the china dream it's by joe studwell who oh, yeah. uh was in china forever right. yeah dragonomics uh he was at the eiu i in believe china quarterly well. mm-hmm. uh, uh, economic quarterly rather right yeah and so joe wrote a book in the 90s about the china dream and how all these companies were plowing into china chasing returns big story china's going to be the big thing the next big thing you got to be in china and then over time they realized that the only way they could make money was by exporting things from china to other parts of the world Uh, and they lost a lot of money and that was the 90s in china and he closes it with interestingly enough a little discussion about china entering the wto where he perfectly predicts the trade war that we are having right now Mm. Um, so he basically, his wisdom was that you shouldn't have expected the WTO to resolve the structural problems in China's economy. And in fact, we're seeing people trying to use trade policy to resolve the structural problems in China's economy. Right. Um, so I found both of these a good read, oldies but goodies. Well, good. I mean, those are great recommendations. Um, you know, I can't promise you I'm going to tuck into either of them. We've got a lot of <laughs> You've you better stuff. things to do than I read 300 sort of pages about the 80s and 90s. Reflexively say, oh, yeah, that's great. I'm going to read that, but I'm not going to read that. Okay, but um, but your readers might read. Right, your listeners. Um, so my recommendation, I'm I'm actually hoping to interview the Yale historian Stephen Platt in the very near future. And so in prep, while I await a copy of his new book on the Opium War, which is getting great reviews, it's called Imperial Twilight, The Opium War and the End of China's Last Golden Age. Uh, in the, I'm, I'm just reread his fantastic book, Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, which is, of course, about the Taiping Civil War, which is his very defensible way of referring to what most of us call the Taiping Rebellion. 
uh, it, it was it's it's great it's a great book. It centers on actually two characters, um, uh, not on Hong Xiuquan himself, you know, the, the actual founder of the Taiping king, Kingdom. Right, right, but on the Son of Jesus Christ's cousin. So I guess he's Christ's second cousin or something like that. Anyway, uh, Hong Xiu, yeah, so Hong Hong Ren who is actually sort of the liaison to the foreign missionary community. He actually worked with Leg, and um, he he was in Hong Kong for a long time, uh, sort of. During the early years of the Taiping Uprising, uh, sort of learning more doctrinaire Christianity and trying to win over a lot of missionaries to the side of the Taipings um, was, you know, surprisingly near to success in in doing that. Uh, but the other, his counterpart on it is uh, the Chinese Hanlin academician uh, Zeng Guofan, who is just this you know, a, a kind of a household name for modern Chinese historians. He was the, the Hunanese guy who created the Xiangjun, the Hunan army, local or regional militia that really battled the Taiping and did very, very well. Um, ended up, he basically ended up having command of all of the imperial forces who were arrayed against the Taiping rebellion in the 18, late 1850s and in the, the early 1860s. Great book. I just cannot recommend it more highly. Uh, just absolutely fascinating. It's the kind of history I wish people would write more of because it is you know, richly researched and deeply detailed, and yet it reads, it, it just it just reads like like a novel. Now, I hate that. <laughs> There's got to be a better way to say that. But it just reads extremely well. It's just, it, it's a pleasure. It's a real pleasure to read. It never get, bogs you down. Uh, so, yeah, great recommendation. Um, I, I really hope you guys go, get out there and, and read that book. And I'm sure that if his new book is half as good, that it's it's most certainly worth reading. Uh, so, Lucy, once again, thanks a ton. That was just great. I'm, I feel very edified now. <laughs> don't pay more interest than, or don't buy something with more interest than you think is justified. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna. Yeah, I'll, I'm not gonna uh, put my money in those P2P things anymore. <laughs> the the Kaiser Quo leads high tamping. Yeah. <laughs> Or maybe that's what I should. Your credit's good, right? My credit's very can, can good. You, yeah. Can you hit fifteen percent on Adam? Yeah, you know, I keep I keep checking my stupid credit score because I, you know, I'm back in America now. I actually have a credit score. I was gone for twenty years, and so I didn't exist as far as credit rating agencies were concerned. And anyway, it's it's uh, America is weird. It's 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 weird being back here, but I. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk. It's more we'll weird talk. there than being there. <laughs> Thanks again, Lucy. Bye. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldhorn and edited by me. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz, New Voices, and our brand new one, China Econ Talk with Jordan Schneider. More shows coming soon. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.